The American Republic was founded upon principles discovered and tested through millennia of Western civilization for the explicit purpose of securing the rights and liberties of each of us. Welcome to Taproot, where your hosts will study, analyze, and evaluate the efficacy of our government in performing its single mission to secure the natural rights of each individual citizen. Then we will develop, refine, and propose specific actions to correct the ship of state. Join us as we reveal the underpinnings of our system of governance and demonstrate strategies, tactics, and techniques to clear away the rubble, build again, and maintain on the ancient foundations of our new republic. Taproot is co-hosted by Todd Williams, a dedicated U.S. citizen with a history of effectively holding accountable his elected employees, and S. Marshall Wilson, retired combat veteran of the U.S. Army and former West Virginia state legislator. Todd, what's the topic for today's discussion? So hello, folks, and welcome to Taproot again. This is myself, Todd Williams, and uh, I'm along with my partner in crime, Marshall Wilson. We are here again today. Uh, This is episode 11, and it's called Virtue and the U.S. Constitution. And we're going to talk about how virtue fits into the Constitution and how it is not just intent to be virtuous, but also affecting that intent or having an action to uh, to follow along with that. Because as Marshall and I were talking earlier, it would be easy for someone to say, oh, I have all these good thoughts. I would like to do this and this and whatever. But if you never act on any of those thoughts, then you're not really accomplishing anything. Right. So, right. Marshall, uh, you take it away. Hey, Todd. Thanks. It's good to see you again. So, uh, in our previous episode, we were talking about um, virtue and the, the concept of virtue in Western governance and the ramifications that, that come along with that. And uh, if you haven't heard that episode, I'd like to ask you if you would go back and, and, and watch or listen to that one first before you come to this one, simply because we're going to pick up where we left off and, and go from here. So this is actually the second discussion of virtue in governance, but we're going to focus more here on U.S. governance rather than just Western civilization as a whole. And we left off with the discussion of Locke's second treatise of politics, in which he stated that the, the, the virtue of civil society occurs within the context of employing the force of community for the common good. And we defined the common good as securing the natural rights, the individual natural rights of each citizen. Um, so <clears throat> you employ the force of community to secure for the common good, which is to secure the rights of each citizen, those natural rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
So that is the origin, extent, and end of civil government founded upon, limited by, and directed by virtue. That's it. Anything else, anything, if the government fails to do this, fails to secure the natural rights, it is not a good and virtuous government. If it does anything other than this, it is necessarily an oppressive government. It's actually depriving you of your natural rights, which is the opposite of its its purpose, the, the only valid government for purpose. So um, the U.S. Declaration of Independence states clearly that the, um, that the government exists to secure those rights. In the Federalist Papers, now, of course, there was the Declaration of Independence, then there was the... Uh, um, the Articles of Confederation, which tried to form a new nation out of the colonies after they had gained their independence. It didn't really work out. Uh, a lot of argument about that, and I really recommend going back and reading some of that, doing some research on that. It's fascinating stuff. But then the uh, Constitutional Congress called itself in to amend the Articles of Confederation to produce a more valid, a more effective, and therefore a more virtuous uh, constitution or a founding document for, to, well, excuse me, I, let me back up. The intent was actually to amend the Articles of Confederation so they would be more effective and therefore more virtuous for the people of the United States and for the, for the various states. Instead, what they discovered was that document had no methodology. There was no mechanism included in the Articles of Confederation to amend the Articles of Confederation. So instead, they wrote a whole new document. Now, a lot of people have gotten upset about that, and I understand why. They were called together to amend one document, and instead they produced another one. And that document changed basically everything. Um, and, and the thing is that that's, that's important, and it's, it can be frustrating. But had the Articles of Confederation had a method for, for being amended, then uh, it, it might have turned out differently. So the Continental Congress came up with the U.S. Constitution that we, uh, we know today, actually not the one that we know today, the original Constitution before it was amended and before it had all of these uh, Supreme Court decisions, which are included in the uh, what they call the annotated Constitution, which is the one with all the junk piled on top of it. Uh, we like to go back to the original intent and, uh, and go from there. Now, one of the problems with original intent is that because it included the concept of slavery, uh, most people will tell you that the original intent was that this be a slave nation. Uh, one day, sometime soon, very soon, I hope, we're actually going to do an entire episode on the concept of slavery and how it fit in with, uh, with the founding of the United States and the actual original intent of that. But I will tell you that Thomas Jefferson made it very clear. Thomas Jefferson, a man who helped people in uh, uh, chattel servitude uh, stated that he uh, knew, knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that needed to be ended and soon, and they would cost the country mightily if they failed. So we'll get to that in another episode. So after the, the Constitution was written, it had to be ratified by the states. Now, a lot of people will tell you that they just went in, they wrote a new Constitution, and that was it. They forced it on the rest of the country. No, it had to be ratified by the states. So the states, it wasn't just this group of men who went and sat in this one room who made all this up for everyone else. They had to submit it to everyone else for their approval. And the nation in general approved of it. Now, there were a lot of concerns. 
And uh, basically, this broke down into the Federalist versus the Anti-Federalist. Uh, I've got the federal uh, Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers here somewhere. But anyway, they're they're actually two completely separate sets of papers, but they they argue with each other. And the Federalist Papers, the ones arguing in favor of the the new U.S. Constitution, uh, they were written by James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay. They demonstrate their perspective on the virtue inherent in the newly drafted Constitution, which they say, if if it's ratified, will result in security and prosperity for the colonies and for their citizens. Uh, that was the idea. That was the idea. And if you read the uh, the uh, preamble to the Constitution, which is basically the introductory paragraph, it's very clear about this. We, the people, we, the people, in order to form a more perfect union, more perfect than the one that was established by the Article, Articles of Confederacy, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, and promote the general welfare. Welfare back then was not a government program. It was just a general sense of being able to live the way you wanted to. Welfare, secure the general welfare, uh, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, our descendants, uh, do ordain and establish this constitution to the United States of America. So their intent was to provide virtue in the form of security of your natural rights and the liberty to exercise those natural rights to the people of the United States. Now, generally, as we discussed before, Todd, virtue is a particular particular beneficial quality or efficacy in something. Um, a system of government might provide a form of virtue with no esteem for transcendent virtue uh, principles or for the common good. So what I mean by that is, um, as we discussed in the previous episode, pure strength is a virtue, right? It's something that brings benefit. But pure strength exercised without overriding virtues, without overriding principles, may not be a virtue. I mean, if someone walks up and smacks you in the head uh, very strongly and demonstrates their great strength by popping you in the head, uh, you know, that may not actually be a virtuous situation. So we gave our government certain authorities and certain powers. We delegated them to the government. We, the people, delegated them to the government for a particular beneficial quality or efficacy in something specific. And that something specific is securing our natural rights. So there are two elements to actual virtue uh, in in this in this uh, understanding of it, one is the ability and will to to execute it. In other words, actually doing it. And the other is the understanding of what the virtue is, the the, the mental assent to the virtue. So if we agree that the virtue is that we have to defend the natural right of each citizen to life, right? We we agree. That's this is the nation we live in. We've agreed that our government exists to secure our natural rights and that one of those is life. But we take actions that either don't affect, and I mean affect as in bring it into being, don't create that, uh, that result or that actually run counter to that result. We are not acting in a virtuous manner. That's, you know, our government is not behaving in a virtuous manner. Right. Um, yeah. 
So an element of moral excellence uh, is required. Moral excellence is required to effective uh, to to distinguish between an effective but brutal government and one that effectively serves the principles as well as the good, uh, the citizens who employ it. So if you have a government that is great and powerful and mighty and yet refuses to do what is right, refuses to actually meet that standard for which it was established, it is not a virtuous government. On the other hand, if you have one that gives assent to all of those principles and doesn't necessarily do anything against them, but doesn't actually achieve them either because it's weak, or such as they determine the uh, the uh, Articles of Confederation, the government under the Articles of Confederation to be, then it's not virtuous either. And in the Declaration of Independence, it very clearly says that any government that doesn't meet that standard should either be altered or abolished. Right. Yeah. Either altered or abolished. Now, personally, and, I yes, sir. Oh, I was just going to say on that note, I had uh, when we were talking about Locke's second treatise, um, I, I ran across this statement that says Locke argues that the earliest governments were formed by consent to form a community. People give up some of their natural liberties and transfer those rights to a body politic, uh, which then has the right to govern by majority. Locke counters the traditional view that the right to govern comes from God with the view that the right to govern comes from the people. Locke also grants people the right to modify and replace their governments, uh, and these radical ideas were kind of what made him one of the forefathers of uh, American independence. Yeah. No, you're dead on target. Um, part of the problem is that, uh, you know, if you... Uh, if you remember, we we determined that two of the principles, that the two primary principles upon which the, or two situations upon which the U.S. government was founded are that all men are created equal with, with the same set of rights and all men are corrupt. You know, you, you start to see what the real problem here is. Right. The government exists to secure your rights and we're all corrupt. So sometimes your rights need to be secured against my actions. And sometimes my rights need to be secured against your actions. And uh, what really right. needs is that we need a government that is that is completely committed to securing those rights, no matter what else is going on. <clears throat> um, and because all men are corrupt, that makes that a challenge. Oh, man, it's a challenge. But the thing is, what really makes it a challenge is that the men who work in the government, the human beings who work in the government, are also corrupt. They're right. all going to their own needs. So we, the people, have to hold them accountable. So virtue, as it applies to governance, is also a habit involving the choice of excellence in conduct with the excellence being realized in a mean between excess and defect. What I mean by that is that you judge the virtue of the government by its approach to the standard. In other words, it's, it is virtuous directly in uh, relationship to how close it is to achieving that standard of securing the natural rights of each individual citizen. Now, a government that was perfect at doing that would necessarily, there would be no murders. There would be no theft. Um, but I'd like to make this point right here, and, and the Supreme Court has made decisions about this, uh, that 
you know, for instance, the police department doesn't exist to protect you from murder. The police department does not exist to protect you from murder. Mm. The police department exists as a branch of government to secure your right. And they secure your right by punishing, by finding, building a case against and punishing the person who murdered you. Right. Whose job is it to secure your life? Yours. And of course, we have a government now that wants to take away your ability to secure your own life. They actually want to take away your your capacity to uh, enact your own your own rights. So right. that is fairly an oppressive government. So establishing and maintaining a good government begins with one virtue, and that virtue is truth. You have to be honest. And the first thing we have to be honest about is that we're all corrupt. That's the first thing we have to admit, that none of us is perfect, that we are all seeking our best benefit, even if it costs someone else something that's rightfully theirs. We all do it. Uh, I'm not advocating for it. I'm not saying it's okay. It's not okay. We all need to be held accountable for that, each one of us, to the extent that we engage in that action. And we need to be honest about it. Um, and, and, and what will result from that is, if, if we were able to effectively hold each other accountable for that issue, for the issue that we all want what we want, even if it costs somebody else what they are due, is that instead of having groups or you know tribal affiliations you know we're all we're all the guys who wear blue shirts on tuesdays or whatever um instead of having that tribalism where each group is fighting for specific benefits for their specific group instead we are all focused on the general welfare the the greater benefit the greater virtue to all of us which is that each of us has the right to live the way we want to, if we can ever get the people to focus on that instead of the specific little benefit that you might get, if you can twist your senator's arm just the right way and get him to vote this way so the government will send your particular community or your particular you know part of the country a check that's drawn on the bank accounts of everybody else in the country, if instead we would focus on securing the rights of everyone, of each person, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to private property, to living the way that they want to, even if we don't like the way they choose to live. Maybe right. especially if they don't live the way that we, we want them to live. Right. If we could ever get a majority of American, and more specifically West Virginia voters, to focus on the greater good, the absolute virtue of governance, which is to secure the natural rights of each individual citizen, instead of to compel, using the government to compel others to do what we want them to do. We would all be free. We would all be better off. We would all be more prosperous and more secure in our lives. But that's that's what Todd and I are working on here. <laughs> and I, I, I hope that uh, I hope that folks can start seeing this, that it's been so long, it has been trying to get your hands on the levers, the control levers of government to use the government power to compel others to do what we want them to do. And look, a lot of people who agree with me on what we should do uh, have done that. And I, I think that they're wrong. So the thing is, it's not that 
we should be trying to gain control of the government so we can then compel others to behave the way we want them to. But rather, we should diminish government to the point that it can only do its one critical task, which is to secure the rights of each individual citizen. And it's not capable of doing anything else. Now, of course, there are a lot of people out there who might be thinking, well, the, you know, the government does this and does this and does this, which is beneficial to society. Okay, first of all, that's society's job. That's not government's job. We can't conflate government and society anymore. We have to stop doing that. Okay? The thing yeah. is, you and I need to look out for each other. We do. Even if we don't particularly like each other. And we have to defend each other's rights. We have to defend each other's rights to live the way we want to. If you choose to live in a way that is completely against what I believe you should do with your life, that is none of my business. Right. Not as a member of the government, not as your neighbor specifically. Uh, but, you know, I mean, if we're friends or we have a sort of relationship where we actually invest ideas and thoughts in each other's lives, that's different. But that's with your permission. I don't have any business trying to use the power of government to compel you to grow daffodils instead of daisies. To, you know, paint your house green instead of blue. I, none of that. None of that is any of my business. The only time it becomes the business of society and society's tool, the government, to compel anything is that the government exists to compel us to leave each other alone, to compel us to not infringe on each other's rights. That's the only time that compulsion is ever, ever justified, which is when the government uses targeted and focused compulsion <clears throat> to deprive someone of the ability or the opportunity which they use to deprive other people of the free exercise of their rights. That's it. And, and let me, I, I realize that sounds like I'm kind of going around in circles, but I'm not. So let me give a bit of an example. Um, if I use my right to live as I will, and to do what I want with myself and my stuff, to uh, buy a, a car, and I drive that car around town and run into people because I'm free. I can do whatever I want, right? And, and, and the fact of the matter is I am free. I can do whatever I want. But the consequence of doing that, because I have deprived other people of their right, of the no, I, you can't deprive people of their rights, my apologies, of the opportunity to exercise their unalienable right to live as they will is that the government then comes and takes away my ability to deprive other people of the free exercise of their rights to infringe upon their rights. In other words, they lock me up. And that's, that's the only valid use of government is that it secures the natural rights of other people. That's it. Now they didn't go out and stop me from running over people. If a policeman happens to be there or gets called in to deal with the situation, the active situation while I'm driving around town running into people, then yes, I expect him to take appropriate action to physically stop me from doing that. But that's not why the government exists. That is a, an offshoot of that. The actual reason they exist is to then hold me accountable for what I've done. Now, they can only hold me accountable for what I've done once they've detained me and stopped me from continuing to do it. Um, I, I hope I hope that makes sense, and uh, I understand that it kind of sounds like I'm letting the government off the hook, but I'm not. 
what I'm saying is that they they are only the government is only virtuous insofar as it focuses everything it does on securing the natural rights of each individual citizen. Now, from there, I'd like to, Todd, if I'm blithering, you gotta you gotta throw something at me. No, you're good. Okay, great. So I, I was gonna say there just a minute ago, um, <clears throat> you were talking about uh, when you were talking about the government's only purpose and uh, how it was your purpose or my purpose to help other people. And uh, I was going to say, I believe that if we were to go back in the early days of our country, uh, not only did we have tighter knit communities that uh, helped out with things like that, but I also think that the church played a big part in that and uh, doesn't so much anymore today. Well, I'm, I'm not using a wide paintbrush and, and painting all churches like that, but I don't think as a whole. Organizations, just local you know, people looking out for each other through whatever methodology they want, you know, whether it's the junior league or, right. you know, the local uh, um, uh, church or the local um, synagogue or whether it's, uh, you know, Bob and Tom going to help uh, somebody move to the, the house, you know, move right. their, their furniture to another house. That's yeah. the way it's supposed to work. That is society. The problem is when you bring government into anything, as we've discussed before, government only speaks in one language, and that language is law. And yeah. government only has one tool, and that tool is a sword. Force. Yes, yeah. sheer force. Bounded, I mean, founded upon ultimate force. Right. Lives. That, that's all government is. It is simply a tool that will... <clears throat> that can be used to damage people who insist on damaging people. Right. That's it. And th and this is a good point to uh, go back and talk about your analogy of the, uh, you know, a police officer who comes to your house and, you know, says, Hey, uh, your neighbor called and, uh, you know, says that you're shooting at their house and, uh, you know, and you say, no, I'm not, and I'm not interested in talking to you. And then, and he says, well, I'm not done talking to you yet. So, you know, it, it eventually reaches a point where he's either going to arrest you and detain you, or, you know, if you're shooting at him, then he's going to, you know, use deadly force against you. So he's got a right to self-defense just like I do. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, the thing is that the government has a vested interest in investigating that claim that someone's rights are being uh, infringed upon. If I'm shooting at my neighbor's house. Somebody needs to stop me. Right. Uh, now, I would never do that, you know, but uh, that's that's not the point. The point is that the government exists to deal with those sorts of, uh, that, that's, that's why the government exists, is to actually address issues where one person is misusing their right to live how they want to, to then deprive someone else of the opportunity to freely exercise their right. Sure. Now, there are times when the rights just conflict. I mean, we've got the old uh, swing in the arms thing that you and I have discussed a few times, you know? Yep. You have a right to stand where you want to and swing your arms. Absolutely. You better believe it. You'll look goofy, but, you know, you have that right. Do I have a right to walk wherever I want to? Yes, sir, I sure do. And if I happen to walk into your fist, you know, have I deprived you of the free exercise of your right to swing your arms? Or have you deprived me of the free exercise of my right to walk where I want to? 
Well, it may be neither, really. It may just be that we've conflicted. We've, you know, <clears throat> right. something that needs to be adjudicated because apparently, uh, you know, in some cases, neighbors can't simply look each other in the eye and say, hey, man, I'm, uh, I was out of line. I'm sorry. You know, and sometimes the uh, the damage that results is just too great to expect anybody to just sort of work it out. But, right. Uh, all right. Well, it's. And I think we could get into a completely different topic there and maybe we'll explore that in a future episode, but uh, certainly with uh, lawyers and insurance, um, they've kind of, you know, changed the dynamics of things like that. I think that, like you said, I mean, well, for example, when you were talking about your dog uh, uh, attacking your neighbor's chickens and, uh, you know, that's something that you can say, I'm sorry if your neighbor's an okay person and you apologize. And they understand that dogs do what dogs do when they get loose. And other yes. people, other people would like go try to find an attorney and sue you over that or something. I mean, it's just. And, and they have that right. They do. You know, I was out of line. It's my job to control my dogs. It's my job to train them to contain them, to, uh, you know, monitor their movements. And, uh, I failed and, yeah. uh, my, my neighbor's rights to have chickens and to, you know, keep them safe, uh, were, I infringed upon them by failing in my job as a dog owner. Um, you know, I didn't argue with him about that. I just went over and said, wow, I, I'm really sorry. Can I buy you some new chickens? Yeah. Can I, can I apologize in a more effective way by maybe taking your family to dinner and showing you just how very sorry I am that this happened. Meanwhile, right. absolutely take action to ensure that my dogs stay home. And we did, we built a you know, great expense. We built a big fence. Yep. Had to come out and put in a fence. It cost us a lot of money, but it was the right thing to do. And I don't believe that building our fence did anything to correct the damage that we had done to my neighbor and to his chickens. Right. But what just, it did was it corrected my behavior. And pre hopefully prevented it from happening again. Well, as happening far as I, <laughs> I, I believe that it has prevented uh, a second occurrence. But the thing is, that's 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 the way it has to work. And, and that's uh, going back to the uh, concept of using the force of... Um, what was it using the force of culture using employing the force of community for the common good that's what we're really talking about so the common good is that we all live within our rights and that we all exercise our rights freely but also responsibly recognizing that there are other people who have rights as well right um, this situation trained me <laughs> You know, it, it, the 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 force of the community. Now, I live in a fairly small community, you know, in a uh, a rural part of West Virginia. Believe it or not, in Berkeley County, most people think that Berkeley County is the big city. I guess, but uh, anyway, we live in the in the woods, and uh, everybody here knows everybody. And it was common knowledge throughout the entire neighborhood that my dog, my dogs, um, were the ones who killed Matt's chickens. Everybody knew that. And it was partially in my embarrassment and my desire to have a good relationship with people in my community that I went and approached Matt. Now, that's not the only reason I did it because it was the right thing to do. Right. But I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that, yeah, I was embarrassed. And that sort of motivated me to get over to his house and 
and ask for forgiveness and see what I can do to fix it. So bringing the the force of community into the defense of people's natural rights. Yeah. But at a certain yeah. point, this to be an actual, there has to be law. Mm-hmm. Those expectations need to be written down and they need to be enforced by a third party that has the right. power. Now, I'm not saying that the government needed to get involved between me and, and Matt. Huh. But the you guys, re- you resolved the issue yourself. That's why. You know, on the other hand, if I had refused to take responsibility for my dog's actions, right. Matt had the right to take me to court. Sure. Um, now, he's not. And, then, and all your neighbors see you at yeah. the grocery store and say, hey, you're the one with the uh, the dog that murders chickens. The, the, the chicken murderer. That's right. <laughs> So I, I know we've, we've been going at this for a while, and I know this is our second, uh, uh, second episode on virtue and governance. Um, so maybe we're kind of beating a dead horse here, but I, I think everyone's kind of getting the idea. I would also like to note that um, in the agricola, or agricola, which is a... Uh, actually a funerary tome written by Tacitus about his father-in-law. Basically, it's a eulogy. He's talking about what a great man his father-in-law was. Well, his father-in-law was the the Roman governor of the British Isles and uh, of Britannia. And in this eulogy, what, what specifically is interesting to me here is that Tacitus very even-handedly presents the Roman ideal of justice in the person of um, of his father-in-law, Agricola, and then also the Gaelic ideal of justice in the person of Galgacus. And the reason I bring this up is because Tacitus was able to see these two men and recognize the virtue of the justice that they expended or that they they presented and and uh, and invested into the people that they they led, you know, Agricola being the Romans who were in Britannia at the time, and Galgacus the uh, specifically the uh, the Gaels, but but basically you know the the Britons, and he was able to recognize the virtue of both of them, and it's kind of funny, but later on he specifically makes the point that. Agricola goes back to uh, uh, Rome and discovers that the people in Rome aren't living up to the standards that they impose on everyone else. And Galgacus has some very interesting things to say about that, which ends with him talking about them trying to build empire. And instead, what they do is create a desert and call it peace. So if you have the, the, the real problem here is you have a government that recognizes the virtue that it's supposed to live up to and yet absolutely refuses to live up to it, but holds others to that same standard. That sort of hypocrisy is destructive in ways that it's difficult to express. But one of those is as as you are attempting to impose that ideal on others, they are going to rebel. That is how human beings work. Right. I'm not advocating for rebellion. I'm saying that's how it works. If you read history, when you have an immensely powerful but 
unvirtuous uh, government that is imposing a certain ideal of virtue on uh, on other people, those people will necessarily revolt. That is how human beings work. Right. Uh, just something to keep in mind and be aware of. And uh, I'd like to, uh, if I could, throw in one more quote from the uh, Second Treatise on Government by Locke. He talks about the fact that uh, man is by nature free, and also that no man holds natural sovereign sovereign right over any other. Right. So he says, to understand political power right and derive it from its original, we must consider that what state all men are naturally in, and that is a state of perfect freedom to order their actions and dispose of their possessions, their possessions and persons as they think fit within the bounds of the law of nature, without asking leave or depending upon the will of any other man. To dispose of their possessions and persons as they think fit. All right, so that's that's one of the principles that the U.S. government was founded upon. Why is it different now? Well, if you go back and you read some of the writings of um, the so-called progressives at the beginning of the 20th century, then you find that what happens is the government actually declares itself more righteous, more virtuous, wiser, and more capable than the people who form that government and actually usurps their authority. Now we've delegated certain authorities to the government, but at the point the government refuses to live under the same principles and according to the same laws that we've established for the nation, um, and then tries to impose those, it tries to enforce those on the people, then you've got a real problem. And right. specifically, I'd like to refer to um, uh, the progressive political philosophy is founded upon a sophistry that redefines common terms such as liberty, prosperity, and rights. And, and they actually develop new meanings for those words. They talk about new freedom, the new man. So the new freedom that was proposed <clears throat> and advocated by the, uh, by the uh, uh, so-called progressives was not a freedom to live as you please, but rather a freedom from want and necessity and having to worry about deciding what to do with your life. Mm -hmm. If you just will submit and let the government tell you what to do and let the mm -hmm. government get what they think you need, you're free. Yeah. You don't have to worry about anything. And they, al they always know what's best for you, of course. Yeah. President Woodrow Wilson said, what is liberty? And he defined the word in terms that are diametrically opposed to the common sense understanding of liberty. He says basically that, that you all you have to do is submit and become a cog in the machine. And then the only thing you have to worry about is, you know, being that cog. You don't have to think about life. You don't have to have any ideas. You don't have to wonder about right and wrong. Just let us make those decisions for you and you be the little cog there. Todd, the problem is not that someone proposed this. People are going to propose all kinds of things. Sure. The problem is not that people in the government try to impose this on others. People are going to do, people are corrupt. They're going to try to make people do things. Correct. It is the American people went along with it and yep. have been and have been for 120 something years. That's why we're in the position we're in now where the government believes that it owns you and the people simply accept it. Yeah. 
a century, over a century of this ideology has come in since the founding. The founding was all men are created equal. All men are corrupt. We are all subject to the same law. We are all protected by the same law. Each individual human being. And now what we've got is, hey, guys, just shut up and do what we tell you to do. Everything's right. going to be trust us. We're the government. Yeah. And that's where that comes from. So those are my specific thoughts on this particular aspect of virtue and governance. Um, what am I missing? I think we've uh, we, certainly it's clear to me your points. And I agree with what you're saying. And uh, I think that, like you said, it's been over a century. And it, it just kind of goes along with uh, an argument that I, uh, or not an argument, but a uh, topic that I speak with people about fairly frequently. And, you know, that is, we need more gun control. And I say, um, okay, so when I was in high school, in about 1984, uh, most of the boys, and I'm sure you probably the same way in Louisiana, uh, had gun racks in their in their truck. And you would bring a shotgun or a rifle to school, and you either hunt before school or after school or both. Yep, and I literally, my grandfather gave me a 28-gauge double barrel, which is a beautiful gun. And I took it to school in my gun rack and I got it out of the truck and I carried it into the school. And my assistant principal stopped me as I walked by the office and he said, well, what do you got there? And I said, oh, don't get any bright ideas. It's not for sale. And he said, oh yeah, come on. I'll give you, I'll give you a pretty penny for it. And I was like, nope, this is from my grandpa. So he looked at it and he was like, oh, that's a beautiful gun. He said, I bet you brought that to show Mr. Shuff, didn't you? And I said, yeah, that was our shop teacher. And he collected guns and so yeah, I took it and showed it to Mr. Shuff and then I put it in my locker. And then at lunchtime, I took it out and put it back in my truck. And, you know, there was never any school shootings when I was growing up. Almost every boy had a pocket knife in his pocket. No one got stabbed. So I ask people all the time, have guns and knives changed that much since then? I mean, is that really the problem? And, and people, they don't know what to say to that. Right. Well, they should know what to say to that. It well, I mean, if they're the, if they're people who are advocating more gun control and think that guns are the problem, they don't know what to say to that question. But, yeah. well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you working through this with me. I know that I can be a little tedious to talk to, but uh, I am really grateful to you, Todd. And uh, hey, in uh, in the near future, I think we're going to have uh, well, I call him Top because that's a nickname for a first sergeant. He's a retired army first sergeant, but Barry Holstein. From down your way, uh, uh, he's gonna. He, he produces uh, a regular roundup of the legislature and its actions, and I think we uh, we've got him set up to come on sometime in the next few days to record an episode with us, right? Yeah, I hope so. And and you're right; he does do a great job, kind of um, uh, grading, if you will, uh, our elected officials and. Um, I think that's something that needs to be done. I think that's a great service. And I think that that should be made public knowledge so people can really see, because, you know, even though we're teaching people about the state website, I think it's imperative that people know, Hey, look, here's a politician. He was on TV campaigning that he was going to do this. And then you look at his voting record and you say, Oh, he didn't vote for that at all. You know, so he's, he's lying. Right. 
So that's uh, that's critical, and um, I'm really looking forward to that. And, and not only that, but he's an extremely bright guy. I think he's uh, I think he's working on his dissertation right now for his PhD, if I'm not mistaken. But he's he also is. a guy with a lot of common sense, so it should be a lot of fun. Yep, I agree. I and I always en- I enjoy working with you, and uh, we we have a good time together. And uh, we're we're trying to get better as time goes on, folks. I mean, this is still new to us, and uh, you know, keeping the ball rolling. And certainly one of the things that we're going to do here in the very near future is have a place where people can submit questions. And then we're going to try to take, I think, what would we said, like at least once a month to start off with, depending on how many questions we have and um, have a question and answer session where we kind of, you know, pull up the old mailbag and go through some questions and try to cover those topics. So, but, We definitely want to say again that how much we appreciate our listeners and followers without you, it would not be possible. Uh, We really enjoy doing this and we hope that you uh, both enjoy it and uh, find some benefit from it. Uh, That's our intent. Uh, So thanks once again, and we look forward to catching up with you on the next episode. And, you know, we really do appreciate you for being here. And if you do find what we do valuable, we could use some help with the production cost. Sure. We can't free, and this is uh, coming out of our pocket right now. Not that we mind doing it, but uh, you know, it sure would be nice to have a little bit of help with the production cost. So if you want to advertise or donate or you know someone who's willing to, it would be really great if you put them in touch with us. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And, uh, you know, every little bit counts. It doesn't take, uh, you know, we're not asking you to donate a hundred bucks or something. I mean, even if you could give five bucks a month, I mean, surely we're worth uh, a Starbucks coffee or something, you know, <laughs> we're going to use the money to go buy a Starbucks coffee, but the cost of a Starbucks coffee could go towards our, uh, right. Yeah. That's what I meant. You could give up a Starbucks coffee a month to help Marshall and Todd. Right. All right, folks, we really appreciate y'all. Todd, take care, brother. Okay, thank you. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Taproot, where we plumb the depths and encompass the breadth of liberty. If you love liberty and would see it established once again for all men, we want to hear from you. Please rate and review the podcast and check out our YouTube at Marshall4WV. That's Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, the number four, WV. Join us next time for more discussions on how we might restore the Republic to secure the certain unalienable rights with which all men were endowed by their creator. Sing continent.